Father, I pray that once again, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Babies are one of the greatest gifts of God. I mean, you could be having a terrible day, and somebody puts a little baby in your arms, and it changes everything. Babies have a way of of bringing joy to us. They have a way of, of changing our perspective, and Babies are, you know, we, we just gravitate toward them. And I know that, you know, babies can be demanding sometimes and, and they, you know, keep waking up in the middle of the night and all the things you have to do with them. But they're a wonderful gift. And we love them. We love being around them. We love everything about them. But babies are not exactly what we would call powerful. You know, we love them and, and, and we embrace them and we're grateful for them. But when we have a crisis, we don't typically turn to babies and say, what do you think we should do? When COVID started, I don't know of anyone who went, or went to an infant and said, so how do we handle this? When, when nations are, are staring each other down with nuclear weapons. You don't see the great leaders going to little babies and saying, what should we do? We love them. They're wonderful. But we don't tend to look to them to solve our problems. And yet, God seems to do that. There is something about the... the, All that God does for us in redeeming us and his creation and restoring all that is broken, that begins with a baby. There is something about Advent, the anticipation of the birth of Christ, that brings us not to the houses of power, but to a nursery. And you see that in the prophetic statements in the two passages that we read this morning. We go back to Isaiah chapter 7, we find King Ahaz, who is the king of Judea, the southern kingdom that uh, remains true to God, by and large, for at least a while. And, uh, And they, Ahaz is in a crisis because Israel, the other 10 tribes that broke off, and Syria, have joined forces and are mustering their armies to attack King Ahaz in Judea. And they're scared to death. And Ahaz is wondering what to do. And the prophet Isaiah comes to him and says, ask God for a sign. And Ahaz, knowing a bit about Scripture, says, whoa, whoa, I'm not going to ask God for a sign. We're not supposed to test God. And Isaiah says, ask God for a sign. And the king says, I'm not going to ask God for a sign. It kind of feels like a trap to me. I've always thought that. As as every time I read this story, I think, boy, this feels like he's putting Ahaz in a pretty tough spot. You're not supposed to test God, and yet he's saying, ask me for a sign. 
And what we find as the story progresses is that the reason Ahaz doesn't want to ask God for a sign is not because he doesn't want to test God. It's because he, is, he has come to the place where he really doesn't want to hear what God has to say. And what has happened is Ahaz, realizing these armies are attacking him, has not turned to God and said, help us, what should we do? He's turned to the king of Assyria, the great the great nation of the earth with the great army of the world at that time and said, come help us. And the Assyrians are saying, sure, we'll come help you. You pay us enough, we'll help you. And the prophet says, don't look to Assyria, turn to God. But Ahaz is so enamored with the size of Assyria's army and the weapons that they carry that he would rather trust what he can see than Yahweh that he can't see. And the prophet says to him, but a child is coming. You can trust God. When we get to the New Testament in Matthew, we find this man Joseph who's just an ordinary guy who God asked to do something extraordinary. He says to Joseph, look, I want you to take Mary as your wife, and I understand all the implications of that. Because for Joseph to divorce her, to be kind, and to do it quietly, and to try to cause her as little pain and shame as possible, still gets him off the hook. When he, if he divorces her, if he, if he ends their relationship, everyone's going to know, well, we might not know whose baby this is, but we know it's not Joseph's. But by taking her as his wife, everyone's going to think it's Joseph's. And his reputation is at risk. Maybe his, his well-being is at risk. Maybe his ability to work is at risk. And God says, do you trust me enough, Matthew, to take that risk? Or Joseph, to take that risk? And what we find is he says, Joseph doesn't ask for a sign, but God gives him a sign. And it's the same sign that he gives Ahaz. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. I was reading something recently that said, you know, these signs that we all often are looking for, the signs don't create faith. They have the ability to confirm faith. And you see it here. Ahaz gets the sign, and he fails because he doesn't really want to trust God. Joseph gets the sign, and he's successful because he is willing to trust God. But what comes out of this is not so much the sign that a virgin will bear a child. As important as that is, the real point of this is we're going to name the child Emmanuel, which means God with us. That is really the big takeaway from what happens in both settings. It's the fact that God has told them, I am coming to you. And the prophecy that ties them, these two men together and their circumstances is rooted in that idea, that promise. A.J. Swoboda says, God's default revelation is not, it's not publication, or information, it's incarnation. 
I love the way the angel connects the two names of this child. Jesus, which means God saves, and Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I think the angel is declaring what God has said for centuries. I'm going to save my people. I'm going to restore all of my creation. I'm going to do my work of redemption by coming among you. Dennis Kinlaw says, when you read through the scriptures, God doesn't save people from heaven. He doesn't save people. He doesn't do his redemptive work from a distance. He comes among us. The only thing you can do from a distance is to make an edict. To say, this is what I want you people to do. And, and edicts have a place, and the only, but the only response to an edict is really obedience. And obedience is important. But, you know, we can obey without wanting to obey. We can obey without our hearts being in it. I can tell you many times as a child when I obeyed my parents and my heart wasn't in it. But I did it because they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Right? We've all been there, right? And, and we, we sometimes do things out of obedience without really wanting to obey. And while obeying is better than not obeying, that's not really what God is ultimately looking for. God's looking for relationship. And you can't have relationship from a distance. Relationships are real and, and, and go deeper and deeper only with closeness and intimacy. And relationships, while obedience is a part of it, the heart of a relationship, the, the response of relationship is love and trust. And that's what God is looking for. And God wants that with us because we are so valuable to him. One scholar says, when you read through the scriptures, it, it's amazing how God views human beings. There is a nobility in the way in which God views human beings. And it starts with creation. There's no other creation story in which the gods create human beings on purpose. And because they're valuable and they want a relationship with them. No other story except the biblical story. And when God gets done creating them, he looks and says, this is very good. And he walks with them. And he has relationship with them. Because that's why God created us. We sometimes sing things, you know, like that say, you know, we're, we're such worms and, and we're we're such terrible people and there's nothing good about us. But that's not what Scripture says. Psalm 8 says we were created a little lower, most translations say, than angels, but the Hebrew says there's the same term as the word used for the Creator. We were created just a little bit lower than the Creator. We are that valuable to God. We're that important to God. We are so valuable to God that he comes among us, becomes one of us, because he wants that kind of relationship with us. And the incarnation is a declaration, not only of, of God coming among us, but the value and the worth of who we are. 
That is, human beings, we are significant. And we are, we are royalty with God. Dennis Kinlaw goes on to say that God, God made us so compatible with him that he could actually become one of us. I've been pondering that for the last few weeks. God made us so compatible with himself that we could, he could actually become one of us. So that the day comes when you touch a human being and you're touching God. And God and human can exist together in one creature. Maybe that's what Jesus is getting at when he says in Matthew 25, the way you do to the least of these, you do to me. There's that kind of connectedness, that kind of closeness that God wants to have with us. He's willing to become one of us. I love the, the fact that in the third, fourth centuries, the church fathers, some of the church fathers had a discussion about, around the question, if human beings had not sinned, would God have still sent Jesus? And after long dialogue, they came to the conclusion that no one knows because Scripture doesn't address that. But many of them said, based on what we know of what Scripture does tell us about God, I kind of think the answer might be yes. Because God wants that kind of closeness and intimacy with his creatures. Do we need him? Yes. He wants us. And God doesn't do all of this out of necessity. God doesn't do anything out of necessity. He acts in love. No one is forcing God to come among us. No one is forcing God to love us. No one's forcing God to want intimacy and closeness and relationship with us. It is the heart of who God is. And every act of God, everything God does is out of love. Sometimes we look at the scriptures and we think, you see story after story of people seeking God and that you do see that. But the overarching story of scripture is not so much people seeking God, it's God seeking people. Again and again and again. It starts in the Garden of Eden when God says to Adam and Eve, where are you? And he has been seeking us ever since. And he continues to seek us. And he is so enamored with relationship with us that he is willing to take on human flesh. The infinite God that cannot be contained is willing to be contained in a human body to have relationship with us. Maybe that's why Jesus says the greatest commandment is not follow this rule or follow that rule. It's love. It's love for God and it's love for others. It's relationship. And here's what I've discovered. When we come to believe that we are that valuable to God and that significant it changes how we treat other people. 
convinced that one of the key reasons why there's so much divisiveness in the world and one of the key reasons why we struggle with relationships, one of the key reasons why we struggle with, with life in general with, with each other is because we don't really believe deep down inside that we are loved. And when you don't believe that, then we have to do everything we can to convince people that we are worth loving, that we have value and significance. And I'm convinced that the reason Jesus is able to, to live the way he lives in humility and service and ultimately a cross is because at the heart of his being, he knows he is the beloved of the Father. And nothing will ever change that. I think that's part of what Paul is saying in Philippians 2 when he says, talking about Jesus as though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and humbled himself and took on human flesh and became a servant and went to a cross because he knew He was beloved of God. And the incarnation is God saying to us, you are beloved. I have come into this world not just to save you from sins, as important as that is, I've come to make you new, to renew your mind and your heart and to renew all of my creation because I love you. And out of that love, you have my love to give away to other people and to be my presence of love in a world that desperately needs it. In his book, Generous Orthodoxy, Brian McLaren retells a story that that the great uh, 4th century theologian Athanasius tells. I want to just share this story with you. Once upon a time, there was a good and kind king who had a great kingdom with many cities. In one distant city, some people took advantage of the freedom the king gave them and started doing evil. They profited by their evil and began to fear that the king would interfere and throw them in jail. And out of hatred for the king, they convinced the city that everyone would be better off without the king. And so the city declared its independence from the kingdom. But soon, with everyone doing whatever they wanted, disorder reigned in the city. There was violence, hatred, lying, oppression, murder, rape, slavery, and fear. And the king thought, what should I do? If I take my army and conquer the city by force, the people will fight against me, and I'll have to kill so many of them. And the rest will only submit through fear or intimidation, which will make them hate me and all that I stand for even more. How does that help them? To be either dead or imprisoned or secretly seething with rage. But if I leave them alone, they'll destroy each other. And it breaks my heart to think of the pain they're causing and experiencing. So the king did something very surprising. He took off his robes and dressed in the rags of a homeless wanderer. Incognito, he entered the city and began living in a vacant lot near a garbage dump. 
He took up a trade fixing broken pottery and furniture. And whenever people came to him, his kindness and goodness, his fairness and respect were so striking, they just linger to be in his presence. They would tell him their fears and questions and ask his advice. He told them that the rebels had fooled them and that the true king had a better way to live, which he exemplified and taught. And one by one and and two by two, and then by the hundreds, people began to have confidence in him and live in his way. Their influence spread to others, and the movement grew and grew until the whole city regretted its rebellion and wanted to return to the kingdom again. But ashamed of their horrible mistake, they were afraid to approach the king, believing he would certainly destroy them for their rebellion. But the king in disguise told them the good news. He himself was the king, and he loved them. He held nothing against them, and he welcomed them back into his kingdom, having accomplished by a gentle, subtle presence what never could have been accomplished through brute force. And the virgin will bear a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. Holy Father, I suspect we have all heard this story many, many times. Let it become new in our hearts today. Break through the walls that we erect and help us to once again, maybe for the first time, to know that we are your beloved children and that Jesus comes to set us free and to restore and to renew us and all of your creation. And may we know your embrace and may we receive it with joy that we might share it with joy. In the name of Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Amen.